Hi folks and thank you for listening to another Tortoise Shack podcast. This is the conversation Rory had with Ono Brin about a week and a half ago in relation to Sinn Féin's position on Budget 2023 and the housing policy. If you like what we do, maybe check out some of our other podcasts. You can check out my own, The Echo Chamber. You can check out Shrapnel, which is doing absolutely gangbusters. And we're very proud that Built Different continues to, to bring out conversations that frankly terrify me. Young people scare me. All of our podcasts are available in one place, one feed. You get them all in as quickly as we can turn them around without any delays and without these asks for your support at patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. It's the price of a fancy cup of coffee or a cheap pint nowadays once a month and everything is there including our back catalogue of over a thousand podcasts now, one consolidated feed and you get them as they're done. Thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting us. Thanks for sharing. It's the only way people find out about us. We want to maintain our independence. We do not want to become one of those corporate podcasts. There are far too many of them these days. How we do that is patreon.com forward slash tortoise We rely on you. Thanks for the support and enjoy the podcast. Welcome to Reboot Republic, the podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality. We are the podcast solutions and the podcast of hope, and I'm your host, Rory Hearn. And I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast today by the opposition spokesperson on housing for Sinn Féin, Owen O'Brien. Owen, it's great to have you back on the podcast. Rory, thanks for having me. Um, this is part of a series we're doing on pre-budget um, policies and solutions and um, we've had a number of them covering um, areas of poverty in terms of we've had St. Vincent, um, St. Vincent de Paul on, we've had the Children's Rights Alliance and many others you can listen back. And we also had um, ones on housing and homelessness as well with Threshold, um, Focus Ireland and Social Justice Ireland. You can listen back to those. Um, Owen, listen, it's uh, great to have you on again. And we've your um along with Michael Taft and others, some of the top um, attendees and performers on our podcast, on the podcast. But listen, housing is obviously, you know, the one of the biggest, as we both know, social economic issues in this country right now, um, and intertwining and intersecting with the cost of living crisis in a absolutely horrendous way. And I was just contacted by, and I'm sure you are, by many people, um, contacted this week by a number of people and, and a particular story by Rob Barrett um, in Smithfield, who's a barber who spoke about himself and his wife who lost their rental home and are now in a situation of couch surfing. Um, and of course, not included on the homeless figures. The housing crisis now, intersecting with the cost of living crisis, how bad do you see it now and how bad do you think it's going to get? So, I mean, I think budget is always an interesting time because it's a time when you take stock on what has changed and hasn't changed from the, the year previous. Uh, and as a constituency politician, you know, myself and Mark Ward and the team here, not unlike yourself, Rory, where you you, you have a lot of people contacting you directly, we get a, a kind of a, an early view of where the trends are going in terms yeah. of people's housing. What I've noticed, particularly since Darrell O'Brien ended the ban on evictions in, in April of last year, and particularly since the start of this year, is is two trends. One is an acceleration in the increase of homeless presentations of the same types of people we would have seen presenting as homeless in 2018 and 2019. Folks on the social housing waiting list and receipt of HAPRAS or Ed Supplement, 
um, uh, landlords selling up and and nowhere for them to go in the private rental sector and no social housing. But I've also seen a growing number of people who wouldn't have had the same level of housing stress three or four years ago. And they're exactly the case that you've talked about. So these are people above the threshold for social housing. Yeah. Uh, have been often medium to long-term renters in the private rental sector, maybe five, seven, eight, nine years in a tenancy. And therefore probably paying a lower level of rent, not a low rent because it's still a high rent they were paying, but lower than the asking rents of the new rents that are coming on stream. Yeah. Their landlords are selling up and they're simply not able to afford the 2000 to 2500 a month asking rents for pretty modest uh, family homes, whether in the suburbs out where I represent or in the inner city. And the difficulty is, is initially local authorities were saying, well, those people aren't eligible for social housing support, so we're not giving them access to emergency accommodation. Uh, uh, that was kind of challenged heavily by the Mercy Law Centre and politicians, particularly from a variety of opposition parties. And the minister said, no, under the legislation, they are entitled uh, uh, to emergency accommodation. But they're not entitled to HAP or homeless HAP. So even if they get into emergency accommodation, they've no exit route out because the small number of rentals that are available are are too high and the private rental sector is shrinking. And of course, there's no affordable housing coming on stream in any meaningful number. So for me, the big change on last year is the growing number of working people above the thresholds for social housing eligibility who would be eligible for affordable rental purchase who are falling into homelessness. And that's a big shift in addition to all of the other families who, who we know are becoming homeless uh, because of what's happening on the social housing side and the private rental side. Yeah, and it seems to me as well, I think the other culmination of things, like, for example, that that Barber um, was in a situation of during COVID lost income. Um, and I think there's groups on particularly lower service industry groups who, you know, kind of, who lost their jobs or maybe went on, you know, basically weren't went on the COVID support payment. Essentially, their workplaces were closed for long periods who were really hard hit during COVID. And because there was kind of this this whole narrative that came out after COVID, you know, people have saved all this money and, you know, people, there's all these savings and you still hear it. And yet there was this whole other side and section of society who were essentially made unemployed and um while the welfare benefits in terms of supports were higher than the um regular welfare which of course is a major problem but they still suffered income loss and in a lot of cases in the service sector younger households who are renting they are now dealing with that in terms of arrears and i think there's, there's a lack of consideration of that but also the other issue of course is house prices house prices you know have risen dramatically over the last three years in comparison to, uh, let's say, 2018, 2019. And I think, you know, the fact that, you know, most people, most uh, analysts would say we're either close to uh, or have already hit the peak of house prices, that landlords are selling up because now house prices have reached the point where they're going to realize our asset, we're selling up. Yeah, and and I mean, it's important to emphasize that, you know, during COVID, while there was the initial period of a ban on rent increases, um, uh, that changed. Uh, and therefore, for, for particularly that category of, of precarious or poorly paid worker that you're talking about, they also experienced rent increases. Uh, they might yeah. not have experienced the full top end kind of rental increase that we've seen in the draft reports of the RTB. But even if their landlord was sticking within the rent pressure zones, if they were lucky to be in a rent pressure zone, they could have still been looking at two, three, four, five percent a year, depending. We had that uh, a, a very high profile set of cases where landlords who hadn't increased rent in 2020 and 2021 in early 2022 were 
rolling in three years rent increases in one go. Yeah, that's and, right. And, yeah. And to answer that key question you asked, which is, is where do I see things going? The problem is that that fundamental weakness of our housing system that you and I and 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 many of your your guests have talked about for a long time, the over-reliance in the private sector, and in particular the private rental sector to meet a very, very wide range of housing needs, social housing, affordable housing, student housing. That is coming back to bite the government, and in particular, people who are being evicted from the private rental sector with a real vengeance. Because we've known since 2017, when positive equity returned to the uh, house market, uh, that landlords were selling up. We lost net 20,000 tenancies from 2017 to 2020. We don't know how many we've lost in net terms in 21 or this far in 2022 because the RTB hasn't issued registration data. But we know from the notice to quit data that we've got for the last 12 months, there's been an increase of notice to quit uh, of of 100%. And also a growth in vacant possession notice to quit on grounds of sale. That's now 60% of all notices. So the private rental sector is shrinking. Right. The, The fundamental problem here, however, is not that. It's that the absence of an adequate supply of social, affordable rental and affordable purchase homes means as people are getting the notice to quit, they've nowhere else to go. Yeah. Uh, and therefore, the real debate, I think, needs to be focused on how many people are living in a private rental sector who shouldn't be there. A third of all private rental tenancies are social housing applicants in HAPRAS or rent supplement. That's 100,000 of just shy of 300,000 private rental tenancies. We've also got a significant number of people in the private rental sector who should be in cost rental, who should be in affordable purchase, who should be in affordable non-profit student accommodation. So actually, rather than having a debate about whether or not uh, we should uh, uh, take measures to keep accidental and semi-professional and pension pot landlords in the private rental sector at a time when house prices are so high, they're going to leave anyway. To actually ask them the question, all of those people who are in the private rental sector who shouldn't be, how quickly can we start to provide them with the social housing for rental, for the purchase or non-profit student accommodation that actually meets their needs? And I think that's really where this budget um, uh, in a couple of weeks' time really needs to focus on. Yeah, and on that, what would be your key uh, proposals for the budget? So for me, there's there's kind of four key areas of, of intervention on housing. The first and the most obvious is a very, very significant increase in direct capital spending uh, uh, on the delivery of, of real social and genuinely affordable homes. Uh, there, there was a, a kind of a notional increase in the capital spending budget for this year in government because they didn't spend just shy of 300 million last year and they rolled it over to this year. Um, but we, we have to hit and exceed that three billion figure uh, of direct capital investment. We have to be able to provide local authorities, approved housing bodies, community housing trusts with sufficient funds to deliver that minimum target of 20,000 real public homes a year. In Sinn Féin's proposals, it's still around 12,000 social houses, 4,000 affordable cost rental and 4,000 genuinely affordable purchase uh, for next year. Uh, but that quantum of at least 20,000 is the minimum necessary to start to meet the needs of those people <coughs> who currently aren't having their housing needs met by the market or other areas of government policy. And just in terms of that budget, the capital budget, because I think sometimes those figures can uh, send most people to sleep or, or either despair, um, the, the the housing budget is roughly about $4 billion. Um, about a billion of that goes to private landlords, to HAP, RAS, various leasing schemes. And then it's difficult, we've had this over and back before, to figure out exactly what then has been spending spent on this capital side, which is the building 
of new units. And it's probably in the region of what you estimate, 1.2, 1.3 billion currently. So let, let's take a step back because the, the, the current Minister for Housing has a habit of using that 4 billion figure. Yeah. Um, and the 4 billion figure is, is a fiction. So the, the, the budget for the Department of Housing isn't 4 billion. Uh, I'll explain where he gets that figure from in a second. But to answer the more important question, which is yours, is what is the direct capital investment by government announced on budget day for the delivery of real social and genuinely affordable housing? It was floating in and around 1.4, 1.5 billion last year and this year. <laughs> Excuse me, right? But because they had the underspend last year and they carried over, it's about 267 million. On paper, it looks like it's about 1.8. Yeah. The new money is 1.5, and then the extras to carry over. Okay. Yeah. That will deliver you if the government meets their targets. About 9,000 social homes. Um, and maybe 12, 13, 1400 affordable homes, cost rental and affordable purchase. So what we need is if we want to get to the 20,000, we have to go from that 1.678, depending on how you count it, that was allocated this year, and push it up to about uh, 3 billion. Yeah. The 4 billion figure, it's one of the most dishonest things that Darrell O'Brien does, right? So the 4 billion figure is not actually what the government agreed in their voted expenditure last October. It is the capital expenditure that I just outlined, right? So that 1.5 plus the overspend. But Dara also now adds into that all of the borrowing that the approved housing bodies uh, will do in a year. That's anything up to a billion euros. And the average annual spend of the Land Development Agency projected over the next decade, which is 750 million. The Land Development Agency is not going to spend 750 million this year or next year. And, mm-hmm. and I suspect they won't spend it the year after. The approved housing bodies do borrow, sorry, do get loan approval for a billion, but they may or may not borrow it. But Darrell O'Brien lumps all those things together because he wants a figure that's bigger than everybody else's. Whereas what's really important about budgets, and I know these numbers sometimes kind of go over people's heads and people's eyes kind of glaze over, but it's really important to focus on it. What matters on budget day is the direct capital expenditure voted on by government. And we get all of that data. So I get that data in a spreadsheet from the Department of Housing a couple of weeks afterwards. It was 1.4 billion last year. New money this year, it was 1.5 plus the 267 million over underspent, right? We have to get that up to and beyond the 3 billion mark. Now, spending that money is also a challenge. So there are a couple of other things we need to do. Yeah. But that is the metric. And whenever you hear Dara O'Brien says, say 4 billion, it is not true. It is not an accurate representation of what the government is spending. But he's hiding behind this because he just wants a, a big number to throw around because he thinks people won't pay attention to the detail. And often he's right because people are busy trying yeah. to pay the, or pay the mortgage or pay the, the eating bills. But for people like you and me and activists out there, it's really important we get those figures right. I think in the media as well, there's, an, there's a responsibility on the media as well, I think, in general. Absolutely, to be, yeah. To be and really interrogating that figure. And I, the, the crazy thing is, Every year after the budget is announced, I ask the Department of Housing to give me a spreadsheet of the total money allocated to the budget for the department for that year, broken down by each item of capital and current expenditure. So I have it. It's a government document. And any journalist who wants it, any activist who wants it, any member of the public who wants to know, we have that data. Uh, the difficulty is Darrell Bryan just keeps saying $4 billion, and that then just becomes kind of unquestioned fact, where in fact... You know, he's he's not even spending half that currently in the delivery of real, social, or genuine affordable housing. 
Yeah, and, and I, th- I think it's, it is, it's really important to go through that. And, and, you know, I think, you know, absolutely, and I would agree and have advocated and, you know, raised the roof and many others as well for a significant increase. And I think in reality, it's going to go need to go further because of the cost of inflation and materials and that. Um, but I think that the other question, you know, for a lot of people will be, and, and I was listening to uh, your News Talk interview during the week that Dara was uh, so gleefully highlighting to everybody um, in relation to how would you ramp up quickly um, our delivery in terms of that public housing. Um, and for me, I think that, you know, the, it is the question of prioritization and there are many problems within the um the whole delivery system within the public sector. And I was speaking to Hugh Brennan of the O'Coolon um, Alliance and I have a podcast just with him, which will be out in the next couple of days as well. Really worth listening to uh, where he was talking about something you've highlighted as well. We've highlighted the whole issue of procurement. Um, and But that question of capacity and how would you ramp up really quickly to building 20,000 public housing units? And that's not buying it from the market. That's actually building it. Um, and for me, I can't see any other way than than like taking a number of initiatives like setting up a public building company, like, you know, redirecting private construction from building the likes of hotels to actually building housing um, to providing significant additional resources. And I, I wonder even is the three billion sufficient to do this to the, the different bodies like Okulon, like the AHBs, who who each of them alone have capacity to probably add an additional 500 to a thousand units if they were given sufficient resources and access to land and um, the other issue modular housing but what's your kind of analysis of how do you actually how would you scale that up quickly because i think we need to know that and and, and show people because otherwise the sense of oh well it's not going to be solved anytime soon so we just give up and as we're seeing with young people now emigrating in in and uh, talking about emigrating and losing a generation and the challenge is huge, Rory. If you think about it, last year, the government only delivered about 5,500 new real social houses and only 65 affordable homes, right? Yeah. So, okay, their target this year is... And not- bought how many of those from the market? So, As turnkeys, probably. Of, of the 5,000 social houses, there was 2,500 turnkeys. Um, but let, let me come back to turnkeys in a moment yeah. because they're not as bad as some people think, right, if you use them in a particular way. This year, they're saying they want to deliver 9,000 social homes, but they'd only hit 7% of that target at the end of quarter one. So we don't know mm. where they're going to go on that. And likewise, on affordables, they were meant to be delivering 700 cost rentals, about 500 affordable purchases for councils and groups like Coulon, and the LDA was meant to be delivering 1,000 affordables. They're not going to come anywhere close to those targets. So to get even to the 20,000 that we're talking about is a huge ask. And I think there are five key things that would allow you to accelerate delivery. The first is, is of those 20,000, at least 20% of them have to be from vacant and derelict buildings. Yeah. These are buildings that are already there. They could be bought. They could be refurbed and turned around in a year. Uh, to do that, we have to give the local authorities the money in advance. But we also have to send clear targets. We need to say if there's 20,000 uh, uh, public homes, social and affordable, at least 4,000 of those need to be from existing vacant and derelict stock. So that's one bit, and that gets you part of the way. The second is within the total number of social and affordable homes that are in the pipeline, right? Yeah. It's taking too long to move them through the pipeline because of tendering, procurement, approval, bureaucracy of the department. So we have a set of proposals as to how you reform that and speed that up, which means 
social homes that under this government might not be two years to deliver, we could deliver them more quickly. Uh, St. Michael's Estate is a good example. You and I will remember the big announcement by Owen Murphy in 2018 of 100% public housing on the St. Michael's Estate land, 30% social, 70% affordable rental. Planning permission isn't going to go until the end of this year. Construction might not start for two years after that. And that's why that's, we need that's to... Un, that's just... So, so the, second shocking, point yeah. is, the second point is we have to accelerate the existing pipeline. The third is turnkeys. Okay, let's let's scotch a couple of myths about turnkeys. The vast majority of turnkeys are not privately built units that a local authority swoops in on and buys before it goes to the market. In most cases, those turnkey developments require an agreement before construction commences for an approved housing body or a local authority to acquire. And the price of most turnkeys is actually quite good. It's not as good as direct delivery through part eight, but the prices are quite reasonable. The principal problem with turnkeys, in my view, is that there's an over-reliance on them and they're only used for social housing. So I think what we need is in year one or two of our more expanded program, we need more turnkeys. But we need a lot of those turnkeys to be for affordable cost rental and genuine affordable purchase. But we also need a clear trajectory where over a five years of a progressive left-led government with a different housing plan, your reliance on turnkeys declines as your ramping up of direct delivery by local authorities approved housing bodies increases. For example, I was in Limerick recently and Cooperative Housing Ireland was tenanting a really great development, right? That developer bought the land, didn't put in a private planning application, went to CHI and said, are you interested in this site? They said, yes. They said, what do you need? They said, well, the social housing need in this area is X, Y, and Z. That developer put in a planning application on spec for Cooperative Housing Ireland. He built those homes sold them as a turnkey, but Cooperative Ireland were buying them for 187 grand a unit. This is 2019 prices for really good quality homes. So turnkeys aren't always bad in Mm. all circumstances, and they are a part of ramping up. And then two other things. There are really good quality building technologies that are being used for speedier delivery of high quality homes in other jurisdictions, predominantly timber frame uh, and timber manufactured products. In many cases, they take 11, 12, 13 weeks to manufacture off-site in factories and then they're just delivered on site. These aren't prefabs. These aren't you know things like what people send their kids to school in. These are high-quality homes that meet all building standards, fire safety standards, and have the same longevity as a, as a brick or a concrete build home. We need to be supporting uh, 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 those technologies. And the best way is to have a state construction company that specializes in low-carbon uh, 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 high-quality new building technologies. And if we did that, that would speed some of it up. And then the last thing is, and you mentioned it, is redirection, right? One of the reasons why we have a lot of builders, particularly in Dublin, building the wrong kind of stuff, apart hotels, uh, high-end, high-cost, inferior design built to rent, is because of the tax reliefs and tax breaks that those yeah. kind of get. If you end those tax reliefs, there is a, a section of, of building contractors who could then be shifted across into good quality social portable homes. The last thing I'll say is we do have a capacity problem in industry, right? When I, I attended the Irish Home Builders Association conference, and they represent SME, SME builders, right, and builder developers. So they don't represent the Johnny Ronans or the Cairns or the Hines, but they represent people who for decades built 
good quality family homes uh, around the country. They're saying there is additional capacity in industry to build more family homes. If government works with contractors, building contractors. And therefore, I think we need to do more, more of that. But we also have to start investing properly in good quality apprenticeships, good quality job path progression. We have to start returning in our school system the idea that being involved in the construction industry trades and allied professions is a good quality career for life. And again, a lot of those new building technologies, one of the great values of them is, is that they're factory work and often very highly skilled factory work. People don't have to trudge one end of the country to the other to be on building sites with all of the implications that has. People have secure, long-term, stable jobs in good quality working environments. So there's kind of six things, five kind of ways of accelerating supply and six some ideas around uh, tackling the capacity issue, which we're going to need to tackle in the years ahead. Um, But we need to be honest with people. This stuff isn't going to be easy or straightforward. You can't just magic 20,000 homes out of of nowhere. But nor should we accept the fatalism of Dar O'Brien and his government that it's not possible. That 20,000 is the minimum required to start to meet social and affordable housing need. You need a government and a budget with at least the political will and the ambition to do everything you can to reach that target and then build on from there. And that's why I think that 20,000 figure has to be the minimum provided for in the budget. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think there's a lot there. And I think that, you know, it is really important to to highlight that the, the, in terms of what is being done at the moment, we are nowhere near what could be done. That there's still, I think, uh, a lethargy uh, and almost an, uh, just a failure to understand the scale of what's needed as a response. And I still think a reluctance to interfere with the market. I still think that there's a an overriding both economic philosophy and within housing policy, within the Department of Housing and within the Department of Finance, that they're afraid to tinker too much with the market um, for fear of what might happen, property prices, and importantly, their complete reliance on, um, or not complete, but very significant reliance on investor funds, large international equity to fund the housing for all plan um, and in terms of that, I think that, you know, a lot of people um, want to see like we're seeing, you know, and they're talking about this, you know, of the 20, you know, 4000 new homes that will be built this year, um, you know, potentially, well, at least at least 2000, potentially more. And there's about 5000 or apartments um, are going to be going to investor funds as their new build unaffordable units and that. You know what we actually should be d- doing is taxing these funds, and we should be properly, um, and really at, at a certain level banning them, um, to actually free up land and resources to be building affordable housing. What's your own view on that? Sure. So two two things. First of all, you don't need to ban them; you just need to end their egregious tax reliefs and and. Uh, the most aggressive and, and negative of those categories of investors will will go and try and find some other category of, of investment uh, 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 asset to invest in. So ending those tax reliefs is key, uh, and we're absolutely committed to doing that. What I will say to you, Rory, though, is, is those funds are really only active in Dublin and really only active in Dublin City. I, I, I spent a lot of this year traveling pretty much to every county in Ireland, Yeah, um, every county, the south of Ireland, should I say, and I'm meeting homeless groups, housing activists, uh, CATU branches in various places, but I'm also meeting builders and developers and architects and city and county uh, directors of housing. Uh, those funds aren't investing outside of Dublin. Even in Cork City, the level of institutional investment is absolutely minuscule. They're only interested in 
the 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 inner core of Dublin and that very high end, as you say, high cost built to rent. So in fact, outside of of the, the capital, we've an even bigger problem, which is nothing is getting built at all, right? Which is a, a separate issue. Um, for me. This is, I suppose, it, it leads to the other area which I think the budget has to tackle, which is renters, right? Because yeah. uh, while we're we're ramping up social and affordable housing, uh, we still have uh, uh, thousands and thousands of renters um, who are facing year-on-year rent increase <coughs> or they're facing notice to quit. Um, and we have to have a set of interventions in budget. So for me, and, and they're the same proposals as in previous years, but there's a couple of, of additional propositions. We need a ban on rent increases, not just for all existing tenants and tenancies, all new properties coming into the market, they have to be pegged at the RTB uh, equivalized rent index for existing rental units in that location. Not the upper limit of the asking rents, but the actual rents that people are actually paying equivalized in that location for that sized uh, property. And that needs to last for three years. We also need to reduce rents. And there are different ideas as to how to reduce rents. I'm still convinced that the quickest and easiest way to put that money back in renters' pockets is give them the refundable tax credit. It's expensive, but it avoids the inevitability of a plethora of legal challenges, both in the constitution and in the commercial court. And renters don't have time for those legal battles. They need the rents reduced. And we're still committed to that uh, uh, month's rent back into every private renter's pocket. We also have to deal with you know, the elephant in the room, which is uh, tenancies of indefinite duration. We have to end vacant possession uh, as grounds for issuing a notice to quit. To quit. Um, uh, many of these landlords, and look, I'm not anti-landlord, right? I live in the private rental sector. My landlord is decent. I have no problem paying the rent that I pay. I can afford it. But, but we have to have a rental system whereby if I pay my rent, maintain the property, and I'm engaged in antisocial behaviour, then my expectation is I can remain in that property indefinitely. Mm. There can be a few caveats to that, uh, uh, but the norm has to be those tenancies of a definite duration and ending sale of property, vacant possession on grounds of sale of property is really key, 60% of notice to quit. You've also that thorny issue of, of use of the property by landlord or, or, or a family member. That has to be greatly restricted. There are some very narrow categories you know, somebody, for example, I mean, you're a, 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 an academic. It may be that you and your family uh, get a, an opportunity for you to work, for example, abroad, mm. and you're going to live in a campus of a university for three years. Okay, we'll let you rent your property out for three years. It's reasonable then when you return to Ireland into your original job, you can access your property again. Okay, so very narrowly defined grounds such as that that everybody knows at the start. Um, but but this idea that you can just provide an affidavit and some family member needs it undefined, that, that's no longer acceptable. And the more I look at the crisis in the private rental sector, because there is a crisis, right? Landlords are availing of record highs. Uh, house prices are now actually significantly above the Celtic Tiger Peak. And if you were an accidental landlord, somebody who never wanted to be a landlord, you didn't buy an investment property, you got trapped with a property in negative equity, either your own original home or a family left, a property left following a bereavement in the family. Or what I call pension pot landlords, people who you know bought that second property during the Celtic Tiger weren't so interested in the rental yield. They want to be able to cash in and sell the property approaching pension age and get a lump sum. Okay, all those people are going to go. Doesn't matter what government does in this budget with tax uh, uh, um, taxes for landlords, they're leaving. Right, yeah. even the semi professionals, the people who didn't realise the volume of effort being a landlord is and who bought that second, in some cases, third property, fair number of them are going to get out too, right? And there was a really interesting paper. Mick Byrne, you know well from, from UCD, he, he tweeted a really interesting paper produced by some folks 
in England, looking at their crisis in the private rental sector. And they asked the question, do we need to start actually thinking about shrinking our private rental sector mm. and redistributing properties in the private rental sector to other sectors. So, for example, uh, we've been strongly advocating for the reintroduction of what's called the tenant in situ scheme. It was closed down by Owen Murphy. Darrow O'Brien has only recently reopened it. But if you're a HAP or a RAS or a rent supplement tenant in the private rental sector, if you've got a notice to quit, subject to price and quality of property, the local authority should buy that and just turn it into a social home. You're a yeah. long-term social housing tenant there. You know, likewise, are there ways, and we're looking at this at the moment, whether or not we we have the work advanced enough by budget day, uh, I, I don't know, but might be something we, we announce after budget day. But are there other ways of, as landlords are exiting, to keep the tenants in those properties? Are there ways of, of, of encouraging the landlords to sell those properties to their tenants so they become owner-occupiers, to transform those properties into cost-rent or affordable purchase homes? Now, there's all sorts of ifs and buts there. But given that our private rental sector has lots and lots of people who should not and do not want to be private rental sector tenants, can we actually use this moment in our private rental sector to think about how do we reconfigure that? I mean, should our private rental sector really be 20% of our housing system? I don't believe it should. I think at least half of the people in that sector should be in social, affordable or owner occupation. And therefore, you know, this crisis might provide an opportunity for some innovative thinking. The crucial point, however, is keeping people in their homes. Um, and if that's to encourage them to buy them or to become cost renters or social renters, I think really that's where the debate needs to be. And some 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 uh, uh, of our proposals in the budget and then some proposals maybe shortly after the budget will address all of that. Yeah, no, I think it's it's a really important um, conversation and it's really important, I think, to you know challenge the narrative that is dominating the media at the moment, which is this kind of outcry about the the collapse of or the fleeing of um private landlords and not asking that question is this not actually a good thing that we're seeing you know a reduction in private rental and as you say though um it needs to be done in a way that keeps people in their homes and i think that if we look at why did private rental um you know, grow so much. It grew when housing was turned into a commodity during the period of the Celtic Tiger um, and housing became this financial asset for those investing in, in multiple properties. Um, and I think that it raises then the question of, uh, just to finish, and, and I appreciate you giving the time um, today, the question of the right to housing, um, something very close to, to my own heart and something we've, we've both worked on for quite a long time. Um, the question of the referendum, and I think it is relevant for the budget in that, as far as I'm aware, there needs to be an allocation of funding to progress um, a referendum. Um, and we both, I know listeners will be very familiar with, with the arguments for the referendum on the right to housing and inserting it in the constitution. Um, do you expect there to be an allocation in the budget for a referendum? or And if, if we don't see that, does that mean they're delaying it further? Or what, what do you think? So b before I answer that, I, ju I just want to very quickly mention two other issues which are really key in the budget. Um, yeah. And I'm sure you will have other people who will be able to address these two issues far more expertly than I, I will do. But one is homelessness and the other is climate. And the reason I say that is because the, the homeless presentations are going to increase. We, we are going to have the worst winter, certainly in, in, in our adult lifetime, Rory, as, as housing uh, uh, activists and housing rights activists. And therefore, there needs to be a much greater focus in this budget uh, on fixing one key problem, which is 
given that it used to be the private rental sector was most people's exit out of emergency accommodation because that was government policy. Yeah. And given that that's no longer available, we have to see a, a dramatic intervention, not just in terms of the total quantum of social housing, but also an increase in the allocation of housing first tenancies and other mechanisms to ensure people uh, ha- have those exits. And the second is climate. Um, we now have legally binding um, emissions reductions targets in every sector. Um, uh, obviously, there's been a lot of talk about retrofitting, and you've written quite extensively on that. The, the bit I want to add to that, because we do need a, a much more targeted retrofit program, particularly in social and low-income housing. But the second thing is we can't build 20,000 new homes and reduce our, our uh, emissions uh, in the built environment if we're building brand new homes. And therefore, yeah. that idea that at least 20% of all new public homes would be from existing stock is a really key metric. But we also need other measures. So just to kind of say that to you, because I think it's something we're going to have to return to. Absolutely. On- and I- and I think just to, to, to absolutely echo that, I think one of the big things for me, and it links directly into the, the referendum one, is the use of land and buildings within our urban centres, because it's not just the use of vacant and derelict buildings, but it's also the use of the land that sits within our urban centres where the infrastructure is there. And that is, of course, key because so much of it is privately owned. Um, and and. and- some of those policy changes aren't to do with budget allocations, but they are to do with how we integrate planning policy, uh, the circular economy and the built environment and transport orientated development, particularly in the context of a public housing provision. But that's a, a whole other program, which, yeah. which no doubt you'll return to. On the right to housing. So first of all, the good news is is the Commission on Housing, um, which, as you know, is headed by John O'Connor, formerly of the Housing Agency and, and, and one of the country's leading uh, housing policy experts. They're going to report to government in November. The expectation is they will recommend the holding of a referendum to enshrine the right to housing in the constitution. I'm hoping they'll go one step further and they'll take the home for good referendum mm. bill, which is the best bill that's on offer at the moment. And, and with the additional legal expertise that the commission has access to, they'll strengthen that bill and even propose a wording for government. Okay. Yeah. We do know that Fianna Fáil currently are in favour of holding the referendum, and I actually think they are in favour of it. I, I, I'm a sceptic, as you know, of pretty much everything Daryl O'Brien says. But having observed them in the last year, I am of the view that they are in favour of it. The problem is the Commission is going to make its recommendation at the end of November. A couple of weeks after that, Leo Varadkar uh, uh, is likely to become Taoiseach. And the influence of Michael Martin and Fianna Fáil in Cabinet may wane on this issue. So all eyes will be on what Darrell O'Brien does with the report from the Commission, and does he try and bring a recommendation to Cabinet to hold that referendum in the first six months of next year? If we don't get that this side of, of Christmas, I don't think this government is going to do the referendum. So the jury is out on that. And I do think Raise the Roof, who are planning a whole set of activities for October and November, including a, a major mobilisation in, in Dublin. Uh, and those of us who are uh, advocates, whether like yourself in civil society or me in the opposition, who passionately believe in the value of uh, uh, enshrining the right to housing in the Constitution, we have a job of work to do to apply as much pressure uh, so that government does the right thing and holds that referendum. But it is also important that that we also now start to have the public debate. So you'll see Owen O'Malley <clears throat> um, from DCU had a piece in the uh, Sunday Independent two weeks ago. Yeah. And look, Owen's a smart guy. And whatever his ideological position on these things, it was a really poor article by him because he hadn't bothered to go and even look at the Mercy Law Report, uh, Mercy Law Centre report on the right to housing, or listen to the expert testimony that we've had at the Oireachtas Committee from, you know, Lilani Farah or indeed from... 
uh, uh, Professor Okanasia of University College London, who presented to us recently, who made really compelling evidence, uh, uh, arguments as to why we should do this. So we, those of us who are in favour of this, we have to now work even harder to explain to people what this is, mm. that it doesn't give everybody a free house the day after the referendum, that it's not a silver bullet, that we're not saying it's going to fix everything, but that it is a valuable tool, that it will place additional legal pressure on government uh, to realise that crucial right to secure appropriate and affordable accommodation. Uh, and at the same time, that constitutionalising that right doesn't take away anything for the democratic process, that elections, government formation uh, and the Oireachtas will decide how to realise that right. Uh, and therefore, I think now is the time for those of us who have been working on this for a long time to step up to the plate and start to win that argument. Uh, you, you know, I had a piece in the Sunday Independent yesterday, kind of responding a little bit to, to Owen O'Malley's arguments. But I do think the referendum campaign has already started. Even if this government doesn't call it next year, it's a live debate. And I think we have a job of work to do to make people understand what this is, what it isn't, why it is helpful, but also why in and of itself, it's not going to change the world. Mm. There's all sorts of other things as we've been speaking about Absolutely. for the last yeah. 20 no, or 40 no, I, minutes. I think- now yeah, is a key no, time for all of us. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And I think it's a pivotal time in terms of, you know, people are really also despairing and people are really suffering. And, you know, it's important to push for, you know, so many of our policies to try and get them implemented in, in the short term. Um, but also that wider question of a right to housing and that fundamental, I, th- I think for me, it is about being a catalyst. And I think, you know, Owen was also being, I think, purposefully um, spurious in his claim that this was going to hand power over to the courts, because that is, um, I think, you know, Michael McDougall was making a similar claim that, uh, you know, that this, this is a really important argument, because in the in the Sunday Independent piece I wrote, um, I reminded people about the Constitutional Convention uh, and the fact that it actually had uh, an entire session on social, social, and economic, and cultural rights, and there was a debate. And in fact, it was Mary Murphy, your your yeah. uh, co-author of that really important report on on hubs, um, and Michael McDougall that did the debate. And Michael McDougall made this argument that you're taking power away from the Oireachtas and from the democratic process and giving to the courts. Yeah. In fact, every legal expert in this area <clears throat> who has studied and has in-depth knowledge will tell you uh, the Irish judiciary are loath to step over that line and get involved in the business of dictating policy to the Oireachtas. And what's really important about the right to housing, and I know you know this, but this is to, to emphasise it for your listeners, what it does is it says the government, in its laws, in its policies, in its budget, has to progressively realise the right of people to access secure, appropriate and affordable accommodation. It doesn't say how they should do it. Should it be a market-led approach, a state-led approach, a mixed economy approach. That is the work of the Oireachtas, the democratic process, uh, and the electoral system. Uh, And judges aren't, if we have a referendum, (coughs) if we take advantage of that enormous opportunity to have that great debate about whether housing is a public good, is a a fundamental requirement of, of human flourishing, or is it an asset class, if we have that debate, and if we win it, the courts aren't going to start then telling governments you have to do this number of houses and this mechanism this way. If government isn't doing everything it can to realise the right, it will remind government uh, uh, if cases are taken that they're not doing their job properly. But it's the democratic process, the electorate, and ultimately the Oireachtas who will decide. And I think there's a bit of a red herring by by Michael McDool uh, and, and Owen O'Malley. But I also think it's because they haven't gone and actually looked at the evidence and uh, uh, Professor Canadian made a really important intervention to us in our 
committee just at the end of the, 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 the last all term. <clears throat> and the reason why I'm quoting him is because he was a sceptic. Yeah. He spent a lot of his early career not supporting the idea of constitutionalizing the right to housing or other socioeconomic rights. But over many years of study, he started to realize that actually when governments do that, either in constitutions or in law, things happen. That phrase you used is key. It becomes a catalyst. Therefore, that obligation on government and on the civil service becomes important. In and of itself, it doesn't fix everything, but it's one of the many tools we need in the toolbox uh, to start to turn around 30 years of bad housing policy from Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. And I think the more people engage with those kinds of arguments and listen to the reasoned, uh, considered expert views of, of folks like Professor Kaneja or the Mercy Law Centre or the Home for Good campaign, the more I think we'll win the argument. But we have to understand that not everybody has been through this conversation as we have been for the last five to 10 years. And therefore, we have a job of work to make all of that evidence available to people so they understand the value of this what it does what it doesn't do and why it would be important to have and i think if we do our job right first of all if government does decide to hold a referendum and we have it next year we'll win it uh, but if this government doesn't then whenever there's a general election and if there's a change of government and if Sinn Féin is leading that next government we will as a matter of priority hold that referendum at the earliest possible opportunity at the very minimum within 12 months and sooner of taking office because it's a really important priority for us. Very good. Well, listen, Ono Brin, thank you so much for uh, giving the time uh, on Reboot Republic to talk through your housing policies and proposals for budget. Um, and as always, very interesting and engaging. And if anybody is looking for information on the right to housing, they can check out Home for Good, a coalition uh, of NGOs and academics and others that I'm part of. Homeforgood.ie can check out the submission we made in relation to the right to housing. Um, Owen, they can obviously check out your housing policies. They'll be up on Sinn Féin. Have you released them yet in terms of... So we're, we're going to be launching our a standalone alternative budget housing document on Monday the 19th. Uh, and then one of the things we're doing at the minute, because a lot of the, the detailed housing policy we had, we did in the run-up to the 2020 general election, lots of things have changed since then. So from now until uh, Christmas, we're going to be updating, uh, revising and republishing uh, all of those core policy modules across all of the various housing sectors. So there'll be lots of documents launched from now Very until good. Christmas uh, for anybody who's interested. Okay, people can check those out. Well, listen, thanks so much and best of luck. And uh, just in terms of the pre-budget uh, podcast, you can listen back. We, as I said, we've done a series of these covering. Um, we had uh, Trisha Keelty and Tanya Ward in terms of discussing child poverty and key proposals that need to be done. We had Michael Taft, Tal McDonald and others from Social Justice Ireland over the podcast. And you can listen back to also ones on homelessness with um, Threshold, Focus Ireland, and also Social Justice Ireland, and also Hugh Brennan from your Coulon. Co-Housing Alliance a series put together by Reboot Republic and Tortoise Shack uh, to cover the budget from a perspective of social justice and social policy and human rights. Have a listen and um, share them around if you can on social media. Um, and it's really important in terms of keeping the pressure up. And so people can hear these ideas and solutions um, and see that there is alternatives in terms in terms of, as what Trisha Keelty put very clearly, poverty, inequality is not inevitable. Um, and the housing crisis, similarly, there are solutions. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. And we'll talk to you all very soon.